0: So Matthew chapter 6, last week we looked at the first part of the Lord's Prayer, which comes right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, kind of uh, pretty much is halfway, um, and so we looked at the first part of, of that, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and today we're going to look at the second part of the Lord's Prayer. Let's just uh, read... Um, the passage just to put it in context so we'll read from uh, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5 and when you pray do not be like the hypocrites for the lift to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men I tell you the truth they've received their reward in full but when you pray go into your room close the door and pray to your father who's unseen then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Okay, as I said, we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer, and um, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and as we're reading this as well, he's teaching us how to pray. He's not giving us uh, a set of words to say, particularly. Um, although there may be nothing wrong in doing that if you're praying with meaning. But he's, uh, he's giving us kind of a template, a model of how to, uh, what we might base our prayers on, which can be very helpful, can't it, um, to have a bit of an idea what to pray. Because I don't know about you, but I find if, if I just go and think, right, well, I'm going to pray now, I might have any number of things in my head that I could pray about. There could be all sorts going on. But it's almost too much. Um, it, it can be a bit like going into a supermarket. I remember um, I went into a supermarket um, on holiday recently, and uh, Debbie, my wife, said to me, uh, Oh, when you go to the supermarket, can you get me some chocolate that I will like? And I said, Oh, yeah, I'll go there. So I, I went in. Obviously, it's in, it was in Portugal. I, don't, I didn't know, it's not all the regular brands of chocolate. So I went in, and I stood in front of this whole row of chocolate. And I just thought, oh, which chocolate? Which chocolate shall I get? There was far too much choice. It was like, And I, I must have stood there for about 10 minutes debating which bar of chocolate to get. And I still got the wrong one. But um, <laughs> too much choice can actually mean you just stand there, you kind of freeze. And uh, I don't know if you find that sometimes. If you think, right, I'm, I'm going to go and pray. And you think, well, what, can I, what should I pray about? And it's almost as though you, you don't know what to pray about. It's not that there's nothing to pray about. There's just lots to pray about. But what to choose? I don't know. Actually, to have a bit of a template, to have a bit of a model, can be helpful. And we noticed last week that the first part of the Lord's Prayer was God-focused. The first half of the Lord's Prayer looks upwards towards God. So people who are coming maybe with problems, issues, things that, that they think oh, must pray, sickness, whatever it might be. Actually, you start off by looking up to God. You lift, we lift our eyes from the things which are preoccupying us. We lift our eyes from the things which are bothering us. And we focus on God. And we pray to our Father. We realize he's our Father. We pray and we we pray that his name is going to be made holy. We recognize him ourselves for who he is. We pray that others um, will see him as holy. We pray that God's kingdom will come on the earth. Um, And we pray that his will will be done in our lives and also in the lives of others. We've lifted our eyes away from those things. And actually, often, our perspective has changed at that point we see things in a different way than when we first came to pray. So that's the first part of the Lord's Prayer. And the next half of the Lord's Prayer concerns ourselves, concerns some very real things that could be going on in us. Um, That might be a bit of a shock um, after we've been focusing on such high and exalted things, such as God's holiness and his kingdom coming. But God isn't only interested in kind of what we might compartmentalize as the spiritual part of our lives. Um, he's our heavenly father. He, he loves us. He wants to look after us, he, just as an earthly father should do. Um, it's a very realistic prayer. It's not just somewhere up here. It doesn't ignore our physical needs. It focuses very much on those, and as we'll see. So we're going to look at these three sections today. Um, Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we've also forgiven our debtors. And then lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So we'll look at each of those in turn. Let's start off with um, the first one. Give us today our daily bread. There's a question when we come to something like that, isn't it? Give us today our daily bread. How do we pray to God for our daily bread when most of us probably get weekly deliveries from Tesco? How does that work? Because our society is very different from the society that Jesus lived in. Actually, in Jesus' day, people would have gone out and done a day's work and at the end of the day, they would have been paid for the day's work and they would have then used that money to pay for the food for them for the coming day. And then that would have repeated the next day. So give us our daily bread. Give us what we need for tomorrow was a very real prayer. And, and would have, people would have related to that. People would have understood what Jesus was meaning. But we're in a very different society, as I say. In terms of food, we might do a weekly shop. Some people might even do a monthly shop. I don't know. I've never quite got my head around that one. Um, but... Uh, We're in a different sort of society. The prayer, give us our daily bread, actually reminds us of God's provision to his people, the Israelites in the wilderness, doesn't it? And if we turn back to Exodus 16, um, we uh, we will see an example of that. I won't particularly read through the whole passage, but what happened then was God's people were wandering about in the wilderness, and they didn't have any food. And so God provided for them. He provided in, in terms of quail. but also provided manna, or bread, or a kind of bread uh, from heaven. He provided for them just enough for one day. So as they woke up in the morning, they would see this manna uh, scattered out in front of them, and they would have to go and collect it. And they collected a certain amount for each person who was in their family. Um, and uh, it, happened, it happened that however much they collected, they just had just enough. Um, that's the grace of God. He gives us exactly what we need for each day. Um, some of the Israelites actually didn't, uh, didn't quite like that, that they had to go out every day. Because Moses warned them, God, God warned them through Moses. He said, don't go out and collect loads in at once. So you can imagine all this manna spread about all over People could have gone out and said, oh, I'm going to get loads of this and then I don't have to go out for another week. Well, actually, one or two people did start to do that, take too much, take more than they needed for one day. But when that happened, it all went rotten. By the next day, it was all rotten. There were maggots in it um, because God didn't want them to do that. He wanted them to trust in him for each day. He was teaching his people, trust in me. Trusting me for what you need every day. How do we do that? How do we do that today? Can rich Christians, and I would include the vast majority of us in that, if not all of us, can rich Christians realistically pray this prayer? How can we come to God and depend on him for every day? When God was saying, "No, don't collect too much manna for the reasons of, I don't want you to just feel you've got it all sorted, that you've, you've got it all stitched up, you don't need me. We can so easily lose our reliance on God in this matter, in day-to-day living. The temptation in people is always to take control themselves, to always sort it out ourselves. We take God's gifts for granted or, or we begin to think that it, it's all down to us. We go out and, and earn money, whatever job we might do or however we get money. And we can get a certain amount. It gets paid into our bank account or in a in a paycheck or in a wage packet, pay packet. And we can think, well, that's it. We've got that. We've earned it. Therefore, it's our money. Therefore, we're not going to... We, we, aren't thankful to God for it particularly, or there's a temptation that we don't have to be thankful to God for it because we think we've earned it. And when, when it comes to spending it, we think, well, we've earned it, we'll spend it how we like. Actually, God's ownership on it, God's provision of it, and then continual ownership of that all that we have can easily go from our minds. We can easily forget it. God himself can just get pushed out of the picture to the part where we say, we don't need God. Why do we need God? Why do we need to pray this prayer? Give us our daily bread. I know that on the 27th of the month, I'm going to have this amount of money in my bank account. And that's mine. That's how we can be thinking. Proverbs 30 warns us of the dangers of this. Proverbs 30 and verse 8. And it says... In the second part of verse 8. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. There's two dangers there with not coming to God and saying, give me what I need for tomorrow, for the coming day. If you pray at the start of the day, I guess you're praying it for today. If you're praying in this prayer at the end of the day, give me my daily bread for tomorrow, what I need for tomorrow. Actually, the dangers of having too much are that we may say, Ah, just disown you. Who's the Lord? We don't need God. If we have too little, actually we may be then forced to steal. If we don't, if God doesn't provide the things that we need, we may be forced into actions to feed our families that dishonor God. That's what, the, that's what the, the writer here of Proverbs is saying. The dangers. But give me my daily bread. We need to be careful not to take control. And I guess we need to apply that and think it may be good to do this week in your core groups. How does that relate to me? How do I take control? Because we do live in a society, I'm not, you know, I'm not suggesting you go to your boss and say, I tell you what, will you pay me daily? That will really help me in my walk with God. Your boss probably won't understand that. <laughs> they will probably say, actually, I won't pay you at all. See you later. <laughs> but how do we work it out? Because we've got we've to work this out in our situation. It's important that we rely on, on God for all we have and actually rely on God and not other people because if we don't have a lot if we don't have a job actually we, we're in a better position in a way to go to God and say give me what I need for tomorrow but the temptation actually is to go to other people and say well you know somehow I'm going to get some money off someone else I'm going to look to others some people can even see church as a place where others will just give them all that they need and actually, they're not cast on God. We don't always do people favors. If we come across people, maybe who start to meet amongst us, and who, and who say, actually, I'm really struggling with this and this and this. There's no hard and fast rules, but we don't always do people favors by just meeting their needs ourselves, without them ever having to go to God, and ever being cast on God. Someone, we can become like a sort of spiritual social services, I guess. Someone like George Muller, who lived in the 1850s, um, well, more than that, but someone like George Muller um, was a great example of someone who trusted God daily for their needs. Uh, If you ever get a chance to read a biography uh, of George Muller, I would heartily recommend it. Uh, This is one that we've got by a guy called Roger Steers. Very good, um, called a Living Reality. George Muller's Experiences of God. George Muller, there's many things that he did in his life but one of the things that he was doing was he, he, he set up homes for orphans uh, to provide for orphans. And uh, over seven years from 1851, he prayed daily for 35,000 pounds, which you can imagine in 1851, that would have been the equivalent of millions today. He prayed to God daily for 35,000 pounds so that he could care for 1,000 orphans. And by 1858... He had the money. It's an amazing story. But he sought God. He didn't go around telling other people. He didn't go around asking other people for the money. Try to put, you know, on them. Oh, he didn't sort of say, I've got faith for these thousand people. And then start projecting that on other people. and Say, well, come on, you can help me with this. Oh, okay, I'll dig in my pocket. I'll give you a few quid. He sought God. He sought God for them. And he sought God for all he needed as well in his life. And it's very interesting how he talks about living by faith, which is something a lot of people sometimes refer to. And he described it as this. He said, um, this is some advice to people who, who say that they're going to live by faith for their personal income. In other words, they're just going to seek God for it. He says, if anyone desires to go this way, he must not merely say that he trusts in God. He must really do so. Often, individuals profess to trust in God but they embrace every opportunity, directly or indirectly, to expose their need, and thus to induce people to help them. I don't say it's wrong to make known our wants, but I do say it ill agrees with trusting God to expose our wants for the sake of inducing people to help us. God will take us at our word. If we say we trust in him, he will try whether we really do so, or whether we just profess to do so. And if indeed we trust in him, We are satisfied to stand with him alone. He's basically saying, don't just say, I'm living by faith. Don't write a newsletter and send it out to everyone you know, saying, by the way, I'm living by faith this year because I'm doing some sort of... mission week, uh, year, or I'm I'm giving a year serving the church, and I'm going to live by faith, so just want to let you know that. Please stand with me in prayer, and if you feel you want to give me some money towards that, that's absolutely fine. He's saying no. If you're living by faith, live by faith, trust in God. Ask God. Don't tell people that you need something. Don't tell people that you are struggling for money to go on holiday if you want to seek God. Ask God for that. And seek him and trust him alone. Otherwise, if you're going to other people, oh, yeah, I'm really struggling. Oh, I'm seeking God for this. Oh, actually, you know, we, we can receive money and we could go, oh, isn't God amazing? God's provided. Yeah, but you've flagged it up to everyone. Someone in your core group's probably just thought, oh, you know, they've worked really hard. I'll give them a holiday. Now, in one sense, God's providing, but you're just trusting in God, not in others. George Muller's being very careful. He lived it out. He's an amazing example. It's helpful to pray, give us our daily bread, because it brings us back to the point of realizing where our money and our provision come from. They come from God. It reminds us that what we have is a gift It's not an entitlement. And so we can respond to that in praise and gratitude. And we learn to be content with what we've got as well. Like Paul said, he's learned to be content in every circumstance, whether he has a lot or whether he has very little or nothing at all. He's content. He's content because it's God who's providing. So important for us to learn how we can pray. Give us today our daily bread. Of course, Jesus also explains in John chapter six, um, that he is the bread from heaven. If we see in John chapter six and verse 30, he says, um, the disciples say to him, "What miraculous sign will you give was it the disciples or someone else? What, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ain't manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven. It's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So he's saying, it's God who provides. Sir, from now on, they said, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me, will never go thirsty. Jesus is pointing out it's not just about physical food. It's about coming to God every day, recognizing that Jesus, that God is the bread of life. And it's feeding on God daily, which will sustain us in our lives. We need to seek Jesus every day of our lives so that he'll give us the grace for what we need, for everything that we need in the day. Give us today our daily bread. The second uh, part of this prayer that we're looking at today is this. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. This starts with a confession of sin, doesn't it? Forgive us our debts. Forgive us the things that we've done wrong. Forgive us our sins, sometimes it's translated. But it also includes the idea of forgiving other people as well, as we forgive Others' debts, other sins. So there's two parts to this. We need to see sin in ourselves and confess it. And actually, seeing that we're sinful is very difficult for some people. Some, some people who don't even know God will actively just say, well, I, I, don't call me sinful, I live a good life. I don't try and hurt people. I get through life, I do my bit. I'm not sinful Actually, the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then even as Christians, we can come and we can kind of excuse the things that we do. We can almost excuse sin. We can, we can couch it in a different terms. Oh, yeah, actually, that, that's, that's an area of weakness for me. Well, an area of weakness can kind of imply, you know, no we've got strengths and we've got weaknesses and we've just got to just recognize that. Almost excuse it. No, it's a sin. It's not just an area of weakness, it's a sin. Or, or, or we might say, well, actually, you know, that's just the way I am. That's just the way I am. Take me or leave it. Yeah, it's just, that's just what you get. What you see is what you get. No, it's sin. It's sin. We need to recognize areas of sin in ourselves and call it what it is. First Corinthians 11 and 31 says, If we judged ourselves... We wouldn't come under judgment. And then goes on and says about how, how God disciplines us for our own benefit. If, but if we judged ourselves, if we looked at ourselves critically and, and were realistic about things and said, actually, God, yeah, that's wrong. I don't, I don't like that in me. That's sin. God, forgive me for that sin. Actually, God wouldn't need to do those other things. God wouldn't need to highlight it in other ways. Don't just shove it under the carpet or cover it up. 1 John 1, 1.8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth isn't in us. We deceive ourselves. Ananias and Sapphira found that out to their cost, didn't they? They covered up with a bit of a lie when it, with finance. They sold their land. They sold their property and land. And they came and they brought much of it before the apostles, as other people were doing. It was their free choice, but they kept some back to themselves. But they didn't say that. They said, oh yeah, this is all of it. This is all the money. Well, you know, it was their right to keep all of it if they wanted. But actually, they lied before God. They sinned. God punished them. And they died that day If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, it goes on to say, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. As we confess our sins before God, he will forgive us. We can have confidence in that. Because it's all been punished on the cross as we come and, and confess our sins, we realize that sin is something that else that Jesus was punished for. It was all punished. It was all dealt with. Jesus received the wrath of God for our sin. He received it all. In return, he gave us his righteousness. We received his goodness. We can receive forgiveness from God. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. God will do what he said he would do. He will forgive us. He will purify us from our unrighteousness. We can know forgiveness in our lives. So let's not cover it up. Let's realize what, we've, what, what a privilege that we can be forgiven. And let's confess our sins to God. But the Lord's Prayer then goes on and gives a response to that. Our response, forgiving others. Forgiving others. We forgive others. Their debts. We forgive others their sins. And I guess there's a question here, which is which comes up by this verse. First of all, it says, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You think, okay, that's slightly strangely worded. It sounds as though we've forgiven other people first. Then verse 14 makes it even more difficult for us. For if you forgive men when they sin against you. Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now that sounds as though it's saying, you forgive other people, and on the basis of you forgiving someone else, God will forgive you. You think, hang on, that doesn't sound like other teaching in the Bible. That doesn't seem to fit with, we're forgiven freely because of God forgiving because of Jesus dying on the cross. It seems to be saying, we've got to do our bit first. Someone does something against us. We've got to forgive them. And then we'll receive forgiveness from God. It can be a real difficulty. Is that what these verses are saying? Now, this question came up yesterday. In, uh, I was meeting with some of the young people, um, and they're doing a course called Bibleicious with uh, Tom and Ellen and some of the other youth leaders. And uh, they were looking at the parable of the unmerciful servant, which comes in Matthew 18. And again, um, well, I will read this. Parable of the unmerciful servant, um, which starts in verse 23 of Matthew 18. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents, that's roughly uh, 300 tons of gold, Oh, silver! Sorry, 300 tons of silver, millions of pounds, lots. Man who owed him 10,000 tons was brought to him. Since he wasn't able to pay, his wife and children and all um, the master ordered that his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. "Be patient with me," he begged, "and I will pay back everything." Okay. <laughs> um, probably not. The servant's master took pity on him and cancelled the debt. Let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, about a day's wages. He He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay off the debt, which obviously is never because he's in prison, so he can't earn money to pay off the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. <laughs> it's getting worse, isn't it? Because <laughs> it's the same question. If we don't forgive someone who's done something against us, will God forgive us? It seems to be saying no. It seems to be saying no. Now, in this parable, the first forgiveness came from the king, from the master. We were forgiven first. We've been forgiven by God. And we've been forgiven a great debt, a debt that we could never pay. However much we try and impress God and say, okay, God, I know I mess up in certain areas of my life. Just give me a bit of time. I'll sort my life out. And then I'll be acceptable to you. And, and God looks at us and goes, no, you won't. You can't. It's far too big. There's no way that you can sort that out. And we can't. We deceive ourselves if we say that. But as we go and beg mercy and say, God, okay, forgive us. Our sin is wiped clean. It's gone. This man in this parable had been forgiven, had been let off a debt that was huge, huge. So many times larger than a day's wages. And if someone sins against us, that is tiny in comparison to the sin that we have against God. That he's forgiven. That he's wiped clean. It's absolutely tiny. And the point of this parable and the point of the Lord's Prayer is, is to say, if you've understood that forgiveness, then you will forgive other people. You just will, whatever they've done. Because you'll just be so aware of how much you have be, been forgiven. You'll be so aware of, of what you've received from God. We shouldn't hear people in church saying, I just can't forgive that. Or, well, okay, I'll forgive them, but I'm not going to forget it. (laughs) Which amounts to the same thing. We don't actually earn our forgiveness by forgiving others. The master in this parable didn't come, first of all, and say, actually, I've seen that you've let someone off a small debt, so I'm going to reward you by letting you off this huge debt. He was the first to forgive. God is the first to forgive us. But once we have been forgiven, we have to forgive. In fact, it's the proof that we've been forgiven. If you want proof that you've been forgiven, or that someone has been forgiven, that someone knows God, it's that they forgive other people, according to the Bible. Because if they forgive other people, that, that just shows that they've been forgiven. They've understood it. If we refuse to forgive others, actually, biblically... That's proof that we've not been forgiven. We've not grasped it. We've not understood what it is. We've not understood our sin. We've never really come and confessed our sin before God and understood the enormity of it and received forgiveness of it. So it's proof that we've not been forgiven if we won't forgive other people. That's what this is saying. It's kind of a saying it in a backwards way. If you forgive men when they sin against you, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. It's saying, look, you've been forgiven lots. And God will continue to forgive you if you forgive others. But actually, if you, if you get all precious about it, no, I'm not forgiving that. Actually, you don't receive the forgiveness yourself. You can block God's forgiveness. Interesting. Third, third passage, third prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Okay, another question. Does God lead us into temptation? Why are we praying God don't lead us into temptation? Do we think God's going to? Does God do that? Does God tempt us? Some people say that that is true. Yeah, God tempts us. Yeah, God's God's doing this to me. The Bible is clear. God does not tempt us. James 1 verse 3 says... Sorry, verse 13. <laughs> Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away And enticed. Then, after desire has been conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't say God's tempting you because God cannot be tempted and He doesn't tempt any of us. Temptation doesn't come from God, temptation comes from the evil one, from the devil. We see that in Matthew 4. He tempts Jesus. That's where temptation comes from. So, if God doesn't lead us into temptation, why do we need to pray it? Why? Why does Jesus say pray it? God doesn't do it anyway. It's a bit of a lead us not into temptation. Well, actually, what this prayer is—I'm giving you a technical term here—it's a litotes. There you are. You've learnt something, maybe. (laughs) It's a litotes. That what that means. It actually means the opposite of what it's saying. So I'll give you another example. If you say to someone, "Oh." Uh, Why don't you you come and hear this band tonight? You won't be sorry that you did. That's a lie-toty, saying you won't be sorry. It really means you'll be glad. You'll be glad you did. But we can sometimes put it in a negative way. You won't be sorry. If we say, lead us not into temptation, what we're really praying is, lead us into righteousness. Lead us into good things. The right way of living. And that's what God obviously does. We won't be tempted by God. We will be tempted by... There's three things. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the things which will bring temptation. And and that's what we need deliverance from. That's what we pray to God for. Lead us into righteousness. Lead us into these things. Away from the temptations of the world. Away from the temptations of the flesh. Away from the temptations of the devil. The world. There's corruption all around us in the world. So easy for us. Because we're living here. Among people who don't know God. It's so easy for us to settle for the world's standards. Instead of God's standards in our life. We can do that in so many different ways. We can settle for the world's standard in terms of sexual morality. Oh, well, you know, it it doesn't matter if we kind of been going out with someone for a while, you can sleep with them, that's alright, surely everyone does that these days, that's the world's standards, it's not God's standards, we can, we can be tempted to settle for the world's standards in our attitude to money, we've already touched on that, some of that, but it's very easy when we're just living with other people who uh, maybe got similar jobs to ourselves, living certain lifestyles, we think well that's the sort of lifestyle I should aspire to. You know, I've got this job as a, I wouldn't name a job because there's bound to be someone here who's got that job. Um, <laughs> nothing gets personal against them. Uh, I've got this job as an a, as a, a elder of a church. And, uh, <laughs> and so I'm going to look at all these other church leaders, you know, at St. Tom's and Hope City. Yeah, I'm going to live up to the standards. That, oh, yeah, it's not a good example, is it? It's all gone pear-shaped. <laughs> you, you get what I'm saying. We just fall into the standards of the world. <laughs> do say no, I don't get what you say. Explain some more. <laughs> we live in the world, but we're not of the world. Deliver us from the temptations to just fit in with the world. So, easy, For teenagers and children, it's difficult. Difficult. You, you, maybe you're a believer, you love God, but there's others around you who don't. And you love things like New Day, which is coming up soon, because you can just be with other people who love God. And it's so much easier to live our lives the, the way God wants. And when, when we get home and we're back at school and there's all the way that it all goes on, and it's so easy to just get pulled back in. So easy. Deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, God. We need delivering from our flesh. The temptation is obvious to us. The things that our flesh desires, just to be lazy, just to sleep and just not, not work, just to, ah, oh, whatever. It doesn't matter. We don't have to work hard. Gluttony, just to eat. Oh, what's in the cupboard? Yeah, I'll just get some more biscuits or I'll just have some of this. Temptations of the flesh, again, sexual sin. Strong pull. Our flesh desires things. Do we go with it? Or do we go with what God says? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the devil. The devil tries to keep us as far away as God, from God as he can. He, there's so many schemes that the enemy has. He's very cunning. He's described as, in 1 Peter as being like a lion. Who, who just is prowling around looking For some young or old Christian to devour. Any Christian. He's not picky. He's cunning. He can get us when we least expect it. He wants to lead us into spiritual darkness. Away from God. There's so many things that he can do that on. But but let's just, again, I think things especially pertinent for teenagers here that I I would want to say but also relevant to others. You know, things like that others might get into, like horoscopes, parties where Ouija boards are are done, or tarot cards. Horror films. And I would include some very popular films today as well. Satan is cunning. He wants to lead us into some of these things. To lead us away from God. I know from personal experience, and this was before, just before I came to know God, that I started developing a very unhealthy interest in some of those things, horoscopes which led on to some other things looking for book- now i didn 't have the internet in those days. Praise God, because I, I know I went out looking to get more and more into some of those things. I went out looking in second hand bookshops, all sorts of things. Because again, Waterstones didn't stock them Now you can go to Waterstones and get anything. Now you can just look up on the internet. The temp, the, the, it's available. But it's so dangerous. And, God, and when God saved me, I realized how close I was to getting heavily into some stuff. And we can be led astray as believers as well. Don't do it. Oh, horoscopes, just a bit of fun. Don't go near it. It's what the enemy uses. It's part of his toolkit. Why would we want to mess with the things that the enemy uses? Why? Why would we want to go anywhere near it? Why would we want to go say, oh, well, I know the dangers, but it's a bit of fun to just mess about with it a little bit. No, it's dangerous. Stay well clear. God Lead us not into temptation, lead us into righteousness, deliver us from evil, from the evil one. First Corinthians and chapter 10 reassures us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 reassures us in this. It says, No temptation has seized you, except what's common to man. In other words, anything you're struggling with, it's not unusual. It's common. Virtually everyone here will have struggled with it. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. God will provide a way out. Don't believe the enemy that you are stuck in something that you just have to do it. Oh, do you know, when this situation comes up, I just can't do anything but... I've just got to go with it. No, God, you are not suffering from any temptation which is, not un- which is not common to everyone. And God provides a way out. And so we pray. We pray daily. God, lead us out of temptation. Deliver us from this evil. We want our lives to be for you. We want our lives to be righteous lives. So, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We see here, don't we, in the second half of the Lord's Prayer, that God is so concerned about our walk with him. He's so concerned about our lives and about how we live our lives and about getting what we need from him, recognizing that it all comes from him. He's given us a template here in the Lord's Prayer to help us in our walk with God. Let's use it. you know, we can we can look we can think about the Lord's Prayer and we can and we can think of it as oh, something that people just go, Oh Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done oh, no. and we just think, Oh yeah, I'm not gonna go down that line and we've got life, we've got we've got joy in God, we've got we don't have to do all that. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. God has given us a prayer here which helps us in our daily lives. It helps us with everything that we face. It helps us focus back on him and see who God is. It gives us the perspective of his kingdom advancing. And it, and it casts us back on him for what we need each day. And it encourages us to, to be grateful. And it leads us to see sin in our lives and not, and not excuse it, but to, to confess it. And it helps us to see the things that we struggle with with other people where we just get so frustrated and we're just tempted to let it build up so it's a big feud between us. or there's a big issue. And it says, no, forgive, forgive, forgive. Because you've been forgiven. You've been forgiven far more. So forgive. Make right. And it helps us to resist the temptations that the world and the flesh and the devil put before us. In short, as we pray and use this model, As a church, together, we are drawn deeper and deeper into a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Let's pray.